Good morning, everybody. Whoa. Welcome. Thank you, Joe, for that kind introduction. And uh, great to see everybody fellowshipping. Please come uh, afterwards and continue in the uh, cafefellatorium with the donut and coffee. Um, so, as J- Joe said, I'm Steve Chastain. I'm an elder here. And uh, for the next few weeks, we're going to be focusing on this text from 1 Peter 3.15. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. I think over the next month or so, as you uh, hear various uh, folks in this body share, you're going to hear not only different stories, different reasons for hope, but even uh, different ways of approaching this question, why do you have hope in Christ? When Joe told me the theme of this sermon series, I immediately thought of this anecdote that I experienced when I was in young life, uh, a story that was told to me by uh, a friend during a training session. Uh, He was asked by uh, a skeptic, why do you believe in God? And uh, there were a lot of things that came to mind that that you know might be you might hear in an in a apologetics debate about the you know the the liar lunatic lord formulation that uh, uh, C.S. Lewis used, or that uh, the reliability of the Bible, or that the resurrection is the best explanation for the things we know about the apostles in the early church. But at that moment, he said he knew that's not what the guy wanted to hear, and further, it wasn't really honest. It wasn't, it wasn't the answer to why he believed in God. And what came to him was simply a, a, a single story of a moment, an experience, where he was in crisis, where he felt like life was crashing in around him, and you know, he didn't know if he could go on even living, much less believing and trusting in goodness of God and God's plan for him. And he says he remembers just sitting on the stairs at the top of this lecture hall in college, just in utter despair. And a total stranger came up to him, who he'd never met, and put his hand on his shoulder and said, this is weird, but I have this strong sense I'm supposed to tell you that God wants you to know that he loves you. And this guy had no way of knowing that, you know, what Bob was going through. And he said that to him, that was his answer. That was, that was why he believed that God was real and that uh, he would, could never believe that that was a coincidence, even if, if uh, you know, some sort of explanation came about for that. He knew that was a moment when Jesus was touching his life. And so that's, that's the way I've thought about this, uh, this sermon series, um, kind of, in, in terms of uh, like this, this Tracy Chapman song, Give Me One Reason. Uh, give me one reason to stay here. And so I started thinking, you know, what is, that, what is that one reason? What is that moment where I would say, I know that God is real? And, and I came up with one pretty quickly 
but before I relay it, I want to share with you reservations I have about thinking about this question this way. Um, I heard a critique once that often when a Christian is asked to give their testimony, they'll tell the story of their life up until they first trusted Jesus. Or they'll tell the narrative of, of recommitting their life to Christ, of, of um, uh, a moment in time where, where um, a faith that they grew up with, that they inherited, became real to them. And <clears throat> the implication of this critique is that as a Christian, my testimony uh, should be primarily uh, <clears throat> describing what Jesus is doing in my life now. What, 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 have I, what did I hear from God in my prayer and, and devotions this morning? How do I see Jesus in an everyday, ordinary day last week, not just in an extraordinary day several years ago? And I find that that is not easy for me to do. And frankly, if I'm, if I'm honest, probably on any given day, that uh, it's more likely that I didn't have prayer and devotions that morning than I did. And that leads me into, into doubt, into questioning my calling, and... and in in spite of Joe's glowing introduction, just asking, why am I preaching? Why am I an elder in this church? Why am I teaching Sunday school? I'm not I'm not a good enough Christian. I'm not close enough to Jesus. I'm a fraud. I'm a, I'm a hypocrite. I'm just going through the motions of this faith that I was once passionate about, but now it's not making really any big difference in my life. Now, First, as an educated person, I know that that is partially something called the imposter syndrome, which is a a very almost universal psychological phenomenon where we we feel like, you know, we're going to get found out. And as a believer, I trust that these doubts are condemnation from the enemy. And yet... There's truth there too. That on those days when going through the motions feels particularly dry or lifeless, or on those days when uh, worldly pursuits seem particularly attractive, or on those days when some Christian says something in public that is embarrassing or absurd, or on days when injustice in the world make it hard to believe in a God that's all-powerful and all-good. So, so yeah, all days. Um, on those days, I find, it, I find myself confronted with the temptation to not go through the motions. And I mention that because I think probably all of us know someone um, who that's true about. Friends and family who once professed faith in Christ and either actively or passively quit going through the motions. We have folks in our community and on the fringes of our community who that's true of. 
we know this. When we, we uh, did our reveal sur- survey last year, one of the prominent findings in there was that there's a significant portion of our body that, at least at the time of the survey, feels stagnant, feels, feels like we're not growing. And I can connect with that firsthand. And maybe that's you. And I hope that today's message is for you. It's not that I'm happy or content with seasons of stagnancy. Um, I hope for a renewal of passion for a love that I've had. But the story I want to share with you is, is one that keeps me hanging on when I have those moments. It's a, it's a story that helps me feel confident that I'm not going to walk away, that, that I will persevere in, in the faith even when there are times where it feels like going through the motions. If Tracy Chapman here, if her song was, was mine, give me one reason to stay here and I'll turn right back around, this story would be the answer to that. And so my story revolves around a family that we became close with at Princeton Theological Seminary while I was going to school there. Um, Joel and Sharon asked us. They lived in our apartment building. There were seven couples, some with kids, living in this building. We had a wonderful small group community. We met for Bible study uh, each week. We were in each other's lives. We were a house church, although we didn't call it that. We shared each other's joys and, and difficulties. And, uh, you know, we shared the excitement of uh, when this young couple was expecting their first child. And uh, our, our joy turned to concern uh, during the pregnancy as it was clear uh, through ultrasounds that this baby had some problems that he was going to be born with some uh, birth defects that would lead to some pretty severe handicaps. And we didn't know the extent of how bad it would be, but it seemed as the date of his birth approached that the news seemed to get worse and not better. And then on February 5th, 2011, the concern turned to crisis. Um, when Owen Estes was born. And Tristan, you can go ahead and turn the slide on. Sharon experienced uh, serious complications in the delivery, and we don't know to what extent the complications aggravated Owen's conditions. And it really doesn't matter. The bottom line is that that he was born with a lot of medical issues, some of which were life-threatening. He weighed less than five pounds, and he was born with cerebral palsy, radial ray deficiency, radial club hands, esophageal atresia, tracheoesophageal fistula, moderate hearing loss, vertebral anomalies, and a tethered spinal cord. I don't even know what everything in that list means. But you can get a sense from looking at him, the, the state that he was in at his birth. He couldn't swallow, so he couldn't eat through normal means. His hands and arms were kind of curled in on himself, and his legs and his feet weren't straight. He had a thumb that was just kind of hanging on by 
a, a string of, of, of um, skin. And he just was like covered head to toe in wires and tubes and lines and probes. And perhaps worst of all, he couldn't breathe. Uh, a respirator kept air flowing in and out of his lungs. And doctors made several attempts to remove the breathing tube, but each time he couldn't breathe on his own. And so the medical equipment there is literally keeping him alive. Well, by the 11th day of his life, Owen's doctors had concluded that his little body was not going to be able to sustain life independently. Uh, He was not going to be able to breathe. And furthermore, MRIs uh, showed serious concern about his his neurological um, prognosis, that that he might not be able to, to, to grow and develop as a person at all. Um, the decision was made uh, to remove his breathing tube one last time and Joel and Sharon would hold their baby and say goodbye as he died so about 9pm February 15th they called our apartment where our, our Bible study was meeting to share the news with their community and I don't specifically remember receiving the news. I don't remember who took the call. I know, I'm sure there were plenty of tears immediately. And we grieved deeply for Joel and Sharon. And uh, so the Bible study portion of the, the meeting was over for that night. And uh, we gathered and bowed our heads and we prayed together. And I don't remember the words of our prayers word for word. <clears throat> but I know how we prayed. We prayed for peace. We prayed for emotional healing for Joel and Sharon and their parents. We prayed for comfort and for support. We prayed that Joel and Sharon's spirits would not be crushed, that this time of tragedy would be something that drew them and their family closer and not uh, tore them apart. We prayed that we, in that body, would have the wisdom and grace to minister to them. We prayed that their physical needs would be met. We prayed for discernment for Joel regarding his academic program, you know, what things to put his head down and muddle through and what things to ask for extensions for. But the idea of praying for Owen and his health, it was a foregone conclusion that he wasn't coming home. Joel and Sharon <clears throat> were a beacon of hope and joy through all this. Not optimism, that everything would be okay, but deep trust in God who's able to heal. But their call that night was unambiguous. Owen's body was going to die the next day. They were saying goodbye, and they were telling us this. And we knew that the time for prayers for Owen's body were over. And then my wife Shannon surprised everyone in the room, including herself, through sobs. She cried out in anguish, Oh Jesus, won't you please heal Owen? 
we know that you're able to heal him. And we ask for a miracle. We ask that he would be able to breathe tomorrow. It's really hard to describe how I felt at that moment when Shannon was praying. It was like my soul was ripped in two, and half of it wanted to just fall into that prayer. To just um, let go of, of the trust in, in medicine and science and cling to the hope of a God of a resurrection. But another half of me that was a louder half for lack of a better world, just reviled from that. It was like this physical sensation of wanting to back away and separate myself from this prayer. And it wasn't just me either. We we learned later, our friend Jen, dear, deeply committed evangelical praying Christian who said, as Shannon was praying, no, 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 Shannon, don't pray that. Don't pray that prayer. And I find it hard to explain the tension that I felt, that Jen felt, that Shannon felt. And I was talking to Shannon about it the other night, and she said, I think people will understand. <laughs> but there may be those that say, what's the problem? Why, why wouldn't you pray for a miracle? And I guess the bottom line is that I didn't believe it would be answered. Uh, to say it stronger, I was convinced that God would not grant that supplication. We're supposed to pray for God's will, right? And it clearly, it wasn't God's will for Owen to live. And then what? There's always doubt that creeps, creeps in when our prayers are not answered. So why set yourself up for that disappointment? My anguish was a little bit for me, also for our kids, our young kids sleeping in the next room, ages three to nine. How would they respond after praying for baby Owen at dinner each night? God, why did, or Dad, why did God let baby Owen die? just not a question I wanted to answer. And if you can sympathize with our feelings that night, let me say that I think for Shannon and I, it was particularly uncharacteristic to pray that way. Five years before Owen was born, within the months that we were expecting the birth of our son, Zach, I went through cancer. I was going through chemotherapy that racked my body. And many friends prayed for us and with us. It was a blessing. It was an encouragement. But there was a certain kind of prayer that never sat well with us. We crossed paths with people who very much had a name it and claim it theology. They seem to want to assure us that if we just prayed with faith and confidence, God would heal me. 
And those kind of prayers became a source of frustration and even anger for Shannon during those weeks and months. They said, God's going to get Steve through this cancer. And sometimes I think that Shannon wanted to yell at them, you don't know that. It might be God's will for Steve to die. And I have to be prepared for that possibility. And I'm terrified of it. But I have to be willing to submit to God's will even in that. And this was in the face of a cancer that was imminently treatable. 95 plus percent survival rate. Statistically speaking, these folks were right. They could be pretty confident that I was going to survive, that I was going to beat this cancer. And maybe that almost kind of made the prayers feel cheap. And so all this was swirling in our heads that night. If we had resistance to praying for big things that were 95% probable, how could we pray boldly for healing in the face of a medical impossibility? Well, from the context of this message, an answer to the hope that is in me, from the sermon title, from Josie's E. New Hope, you've already guessed how the story ends. But just like how we know the story ends as we travel from Good Friday to Easter every spring, it's essential to tell. For me, I never get tired of hearing and telling how the story of Oenestus ends. And on my best days, I feel the same about Easter. Next slide. February 16th, 12 days after his birth, Owen was given medicine to help with the pain, and he and his family were moved from the neonatal ICU to a private room, and his monitors were all shut off, and the breathing tube was removed. Joel and Sharon held their son and stroked his head, preparing to watch him slip into the hands of Jesus. And he didn't. He kept living. His heart kept beating. His lungs kept breathing. After about three minutes that Joel said it felt like an eternity, the doctor, hovering on the edge of the room, came over and turned the monitors back on. And everything was normal. And a wave of confused exhilaration went through the room. And it's on video on their blog. You could hear Sharon say, we get to keep him. Next slide. And they did. They got to keep him. And after months of treatment and surgeries and returns to the hospital, some of them planned for surgeries, many of them unplanned emergencies, more times of touch and go, not sure how this was going to turn out. We all got to celebrate his first birthday with him in our apartment. Next slide. 
and uh, we got to welcome him home and enjoy spending the next year and a half at Princeton, at Princeton with him and his family. And this spring, next slide, my family got the opportunity to visit seven-year-old Owen. <laughs> After years of therapy, he can talk to us through eye-controlled uh, speech modulators, ask us questions, ask me if I had any brothers and sisters. So this, next slide. This life, this miracle, this sweet foretaste of the resurrection. This is the one reason I can give you for the hope that is in me. It's not the only reason by any means. It's a powerful one. When those tugs of doubt ask, is all this God stuff real? And if so, does it matter? When I ponder the idea of giving up the struggle to keep walking the walk, much less talking the talk of Jesus stuff, I can think about Owen Estes and about Shannon's prayer of desperation in our small group that night in the face of hopelessness. And I know as much as I know anything at all that I've ever experienced, that we saw a miracle in February 2011. And this is enough courage to help me resist the temptation to stop trying to both believe and live out my faith in Christ. This is one reason God's given me to turn around and stay. I want to close this morning with two reflections about this story and its role in my faith and hopefully in yours. First, I want to affirm <clears throat> that as powerful as this story may be for me, my faith is not in the life of Oenestus, but in the God of resurrection who granted and restored Owen's life. Owen and his story are not my anchor. There's certainly a chain that tethers me to the anchor. And without those tangible, perceptible chains that we all need, that we as frail humans need to connect us to the anchor, it's possible to be adrift. But the anchor is Jesus. I think Joe's given me permission for today's sermon to primarily be about my own experience, the reason for the hope that is in me, a testimony of the living word in my life. But I also feel an obligation to connect that testimony to the written word of the Bible. I chose as my text this morning, 1 Corinthians fifteen, twelve through 19. Let me read that for you now. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses before God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But did not raise him and uh, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I'd like to try to describe how my understanding of that last verse has evolved over the years. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I would say for the first couple decades of my life that I probably had kind of a fire insurance view of that verse. Because Jesus was resurrected, we, the church, would be someday as well. After our bodies die, we'll have eternal life with Jesus in heaven. If not, then the world should feel sorry for us for wasting our time going to church, reading our Bibles, for eschewing pleasures of the world that we understand to be sin. As, as I've matured, I think I would say my emphasis, both in my faith and in my understanding of this verse, shifted from heaven someday in the future to a confidence in the resurrection that happened back then in the past. This verse was kind of a touchstone for me of the truth of Easter, as crazy as it seems to the modern mind that Jesus walking out of the tomb is historical fact, something that actually happened. And if it didn't, then we Christians are to be pitied, not for missing out on fun, but for believing a falsehood. But I'd also say that in a certain way, as I've gotten older, that historical fact of the resurrection has become somewhat less critical to the practice of my faith. Not my faith itself, but how I live it out. When I was about 25, I first read Philip Yancey's book, The Jesus I Never Knew. And Yancey quotes a Russian author, Fyodor Dostoevsky, who said, if someone proved to me that Christ is outside the truth, and that in reality the truth were outside of Christ, then I should prefer to remain with Christ than with the truth. I found this statement shocking, absurd. It offended me. I thought it was ridiculous. I thought Dostoevsky was crazy. Why bother with this Christianity stuff if, if Christ is outside the truth? If Jesus' resurrection isn't true, forget it. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's kind of how you know, I looked at, at that quote. But that statement haunted, with, haunted me. It stayed with me. And over the two decades or so since I read that, <clears throat> the out, that outrageous claim has kind of resonated more and more deeply. 
Jesus has shown us the way to real life today in this world. Dying to myself, loving my neighbor and my enemies, forgiving, showing grace, serving others, being free from the pursuit of the cares of the world, working to be a conduit of the coming of God's kingdom on earth. Of course, these aren't ways of working out my salvation. They're not even merely sacrifices of gratitude for the grace of that salvation. They are, in fact, a gift. Following Jesus is literally the best way to live life today in this world, even for my own benefit. If you resonate with this reflection, let me suggest that 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen may offer us a corrective to that perspective. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, hope in Christ is not merely a way to live out our physical life in this world in the best possible way. We're not deists who believe that God wound up the world and is letting it run along, governed by Newtonian physics and quantum mechanics. It's not just that Jesus has shown us the best way to move through this material world. Instead, God, through Jesus, supernaturally disrupted the world. And the story of Oenestus reminds me that this God of resurrection still supernaturally disrupts this world in ways that I can't ever explain or understand. As far as I know, there's really no medical explanation for the survival of this little guy up here. It's a miracle. It it filled me and still fills me with awe, and it drives me to my knees in reverence for the author of that awe. And finally, one last thought. What is the purpose of this message? Of course, I, I hope you're encouraged. I hope all of you are encouraged by this message. It would be really cool and gratifying if someone was encouraged in a life-changing way. If someone in hearing this sermon online has been singing, give me one reason to stay here and I'll turn right back around. And it would be amazing if this story was that one reason. But what about everyone else? What do we do with it? I'd like to point out that I'm not the main character in this story. It's primarily about Owen and Joel and Sharon. And I've experienced the hand of God firsthand, even in some ways that people would deem miraculous, going through cancer, walking away, sort of walking away from a a horrific car accident that I'm told is not the kind that people usually survive. Somehow these things feel more like a part of my wife's testimony than my own. I feel like I just kind of went through those. I I feel more strength and more encouraging encouragement from hearing uh, the reason for hope 
in other people. So in as much as that might be true for other folks as well, I would encourage you to tell your story. How would you answer that question? How do you know that God is real? Literally. Feel free to tell me that story and tell others here that you might not know. Tell your house church or someone else in the congregation. What is the reason for the hope that is in you? And through the telling of our stories, may the God of resurrection multiply your hope and mine. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the life and the miracle of Oenestus, for the testimony of his family, their willingness to share their story with us. I thank you that you've given us a reason. You've given us one reason, and you've given us many reasons for hope. Pray that we would have the confidence to share those reasons with one another. I pray for those that are are struggling to find that hope and to hold on to it. That you would uh, provide the courage to hold on or to turn around. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.